Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Hope you're all encouraged with spring finally here. I'll tell you, I, I've been waiting for it. It's nice. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful for Your Word. Lord, in these dark times, as we sang about in that song earlier in the service, these are days of famine and darkness and sword. And Lord, we see the images of famine starving people and of, of darkness as oil fields burn. And Lord, it's a day of the sword when, when there are tanks and bombs and, and soldiers at war with each other. And we thank you, Lord, that in these dark times that you give us your word, which is a pure and bright light from heaven. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us something proactively that we can do in these dark times, that we don't just have to sit back, but that we can proclaim your word, that we can speak forth the truth of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we thank you that we gather here, even on this dark, cloudy spring day, we thank you that your light is shining in our midst, that your word is here with us. And so, Lord, I pray, first, shine your lights on us this morning so that we might be ready to go out and shine the light to others. Because, Lord, we believe that you are a good and all-powerful God, that you love us and that you love the peoples of this earth, and that you've sent Christ and that you've sent the gospel for salvation. Lord, we do pray for um, the Iraqi people today, as Seth already prayed. God, I pray that through all of this, that the gospel might gain a foothold in Iraq. Whether, Lord, it's through soldiers who stay around and, and share the word, or whether it's just through an opening up of the culture and the, and the politics there to other viewpoints. God, I pray, whatever means you can, bring the gospel to those people. For, Lord, that, that is the greatest oppression of all, to be denied the gospel of grace. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you might bring it to them. And then, Lord, bring it to us. We live in a freer society, but, God, unless we have Christ, we are just as enslaved. And so I pray, bring us the gospel this morning. We ask Christ that you'd be here with us in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. We're about halfway through the book of Ephesians, if you can believe it. Uh, for those of you who are with us for the first time this Sunday, we started in Ephesians in September. And here we are, almost halfway through at the end of chapter 3. This is sort of like the two-minute warning in the first half. Uh, we're getting near the end of chapter 3. And so it might be good just to recap quickly 
where we've been so far in the book. I don't want to spend a lot of time doing it, but just to give a quick overview. Um, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all designed to make us aware of how great our salvation is in Christ. To uh, sort of lay before our eyes in, in a big banquet-like fashion all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In fact, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, I believe chapter 1, verse 3 is kind of a summary of the whole point of the first three chapters of the book. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so that's what the whole first three chapters are about, to bring glory to God by just showing us in as many ways possible what these blessings are. And so uh, we see in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, there's this grocery list of blessings that Christ has given us. You remember, we, we talked about the fact that in Greek, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence. It's just Paul's like, <gasps> you know, he just goes on and on and on and on and on, and it finally finishes it in verse 14, because he's just getting out all of these different blessings we have. And then in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, it's the next section. And there Paul is praying that God would enable us to understand the blessings we have more deeply. And he especially camps on the blessing of God's power in our lives. And then chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he takes another tack. He looks at the transformation that's happened in our lives, that before Christ we were dead in our sins, but now in Christ we are alive spiritually. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 23, that's the next major chunk. And there he's, uh, he's talked about that before Christ we were excluded Gentiles, but now in Christ we have become part of the people of God. And then we just finished chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And there Paul is talking about the mystery that's been made known to us Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel. So he's finally wrapping it up in verse 14. It, through many different ways, different images, different um, uh, pictures and, and descriptions, Paul has been trying to show us how great our salvation is. Uh, you, you know, when I, when I was studying this, it made me think of the movie The Matrix. I'm sure it did you too. Because, um, you, know, you know, if you haven't seen The Matrix, well, this illustration isn't going to make any sense, so you can just put your mind on pause. But if you've seen it, you know, there's an opening scene in this movie where Trinity is working on the computer and the police come in and bust her and she starts fighting with them. And there's this, this famous scene that's not only very cool, but it was also a groundbreaking moment in special effects, which is why it's also significant, where she jumps up in the air to do a karate kick on this, this policeman, and she freezes in midair. You know this scene? And then the camera rotates around her 360 degrees, so it's like she spins around in midair, and you're like, how do they do that? In fact, my wife and I got one of our, our big fights in our marriages. We got in a real big fight over how they did that. Because, I mean, it was like, it goes bad. Um, I was like, it was a computer. They, did, they made her a computer and they spun it. She's like, no, 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 it was cameras all the way around her that took all the pictures and then just rotated the frames. So she was right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not that she's ever reminded me of that every time we see the movie, but... Uh, so that's how they did it. They, they, you know, they take all these pictures of, of the actor suspended on a wire and then they take them all at once, and then they can rotate the frame so it looks like the person's spinning. It's really cool. Anyway, <laughs> the point. <laughs> I, I feel like that's what Paul has done in Ephesians. He's taken the spiritual blessings in Christ, lifted them up in front of our eyes, and then freeze. And then we go all the way around. And we're just like, 
you know, spinning around all of the blessings from as many different angles as we can, just to take in the scope and the magnitude of what God has done for us. Chapters 1 through 3 is just frozen before our eyes the greatness of our spiritual blessings and let us view it from as many different angles as possible. So Paul has told us all about the blessings in Christ and now, you know what, there's nothing left to say. I mean, what else can he tell us? He's like, if you didn't get it by now, you didn't get it. And so he switches gears here at the end of chapter 3 from teaching about the blessings we have in Christ to praying that what he's taught us will actually sink in. That's the, what's happening now at this part of the book, uh, this part of the letter, rather. At chapter 3, verse 14, he, he's saying, okay, I preached my heart out to you, and now I'm going to pray that my preaching will sink into your hearts. I've taught you about Christ and his blessings, but now I'm going to pray that my teaching will go down into your souls. Paul is praying that his teachings about the blessings we have in Christ won't just go in one ear and out the other ear, as so often is the case with me, but, but like, like a, a spiritual uh, bunker buster, it will drop down into the hard bunker of my soul and crack it open so that God's light can just be effused throughout my soul. And that all the things I've read won't just stay in my head like so much you know, data, but they will sink down into my heart. That I won't just understand the doctrine of adoption, but that I will really experience and, and, and live it. That I won't just understand the great, God's great love for me intellectually, but that I will feel it in a sense. That, that it will become part of my worldview and my, my way of operating. Paul wants these truths to sink down in. And because he wants us to really grasp it, he shifts gears now from teaching to prayer. And so in verse 14, it says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, so he's praying, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray. There he goes. Now I'm praying. What does he pray? That out of his glorious riches, that is speaking of God, out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the idea. That Paul wants this to be more than just a, an intellectual exercise. He wants the, the truths that he's taught to go down into the inner being, uh, the heart, the soul, that, that inner part of us that nobody knows except us and God. And we can put on a front and we can do whatever we want, but only we know what's really going on in our hearts and only God knows what's really going on in our hearts. And so Paul prays, you know, I don't know what's going on in your hearts, so I'm praying that God will take his spirit and put these things to work in your souls. Because the reality is, biblical religion is always a matter of the heart. From the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, you see this theme that God is looking at our hearts. Not, not that it's confined only to the heart. Obviously, biblical Christianity must result in actions and in a changed life. But, but the heart is where it begins. And there's this real uh, this theme of warning throughout the, the Bible that says, beware of external Christianity and external religion that does not have an engaged heart. Uh, for instance, look at your sermon notes, this little insert in your bulletin. It says Ephesians 3, 14 to 17. It says at the top, biblical religion must involve the heart. These are some warnings. We could probably spend the whole morning just reading texts in the Bible that have warnings for us about hypocrisy. Beware of the external show of religion without the internal heart being committed. 
Uh, for instance, 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23, that famous uh, scene where, where Samuel comes and busts King Saul, because God said, conquer these enemies and take all their animals and sacrifice them. Uh, and, and, uh, or, or rather, oh no, this is the scene where he says, wait for, Saul, for Samuel to come and sacrifice them. But Saul just goes ahead and sacrifices him himself. Samuel says to Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. The outward ritual of sacrifice is far less important than a heart that is committed to God and willing to do his will, whatever he says. Or Second Chronicles 16.9, I love this one. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's as if God has x-ray vision, he has soul vision goggles on, and, and he can see into our hearts. And he's just looking around for anyone whose heart is committed to him. And when he finds those people, he strengthens them with his grace. Or this famous verse from Isaiah 29. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. The Israelites had external religion down pat. They could do all the rituals. They said all the right words. They talked the talk. But in their hearts, they were a million miles away from where God wanted them to be. Or just one more. We don't want to have to read all these. But this last one here from the New Testament. This is Jesus. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. <clears throat> he was really a, you know, a warm and fuzzy preacher. <laughs> Think about that. You hypocrites. He's let them have it. He said, You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean as well. Now, obviously, cup and dish is sort of a symbol of the person. The Pharisees were very big into making sure that things were ritually clean. And so uh, Jesus takes that fact and sort of turns it around on him and says, you're like a cup and you're so concerned about having all these external rituals right, but your hearts are full of uh, the things he talks about, self-indulgence and greed. And so it's because of this focus throughout the scripture on the heart as the locus for true spirituality that the true Christianity and true religion must spring from the inside out. Because of that, Paul is praying, God, let these words that I've said go down into their hearts. May God, through his Holy Spirit, do a work in your inner person by his power so that, we, that I wouldn't just understand Ephesians, but that I would really live it and believe it. I talked to an uh, older pastor recently, uh, just two weeks ago, and was hanging out with him talking uh, in, interesting old guy. He's, um, I'd probably say he's in his, his late 60s, so he's seen a lot of men. I'm not saying he's old. I'm just saying he's older than me. Anyway, so he's, 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 but he's a great old guy. He just knows a lot, so I'm just sort of picking his brain about ministry and asking him questions. And, and he says that in this church that he's in now, when he first got there, uh, they had a choir. But the problem was this choir would come into the, the choir loft and they would have their robes on, and they would be all, you know, ready to, to sing. But, like, as the service is about to happen, they were just chit-chatting away. You know, and it was, where are we going out for lunch today? And blah, 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 yada, yada. And they're just talking. And it's like the service is about to start, 
The whole congregation is facing front, and they're just having a social hour up there. And he's like, people, this is not a social hour. We're about to lead these, these congregants in worship. He said that sometimes even during the prayer, when, when someone would be up front leading the congregation in prayer, the choir would be talking to each other behind them. And he was just like, what is this all about? And, and he, he said that sometimes when he preached, he could almost feel a spiritual resistance in the room because of this, this just you know, godless approach to worship. And so you know what he did? He disbanded the choir. <laughs> and, and he instituted a praise team. And the reason he instituted the praise team wasn't that he prefers praise music. This, this, is, you know, this guy is from a generation where he prefers choir music, actually. He doesn't really like praise music, he said. But the reason he did it was because there were people in the church who had the right heart for God. And he wanted them leading worship instead of the choir whose heart didn't. Even if he didn't like the music as much. Because the most important thing is the heart. Now, what am I saying? That, that praise and worship music is more spiritual than choir music? No. You know, if that's what you heard, then you totally just misunderstood everything I just said. Okay, that's not what I said. What I said was, the point is not the type of music. The point is the heart. And, and whatever you do in leading God's people, whether it's singing in the choir, playing a drum, playing a violin, serving as an elder, teaching a Sunday school class, the most important qualification is that our hearts are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. The right heart attitude is more important to being an elder than leadership skills. Now, leadership skills are critical to being an elder, but the right heart attitude is more important. The right heart attitude is more important to leading worship than musical ability, although we hope that people have musical ability. Um, you know, but it's the most important thing. Look at the qualifications in the New Testament for elders. What are they? Character qualifications. The concern is the heart truly loving the Lord, and God can give you the skills and the abilities. And so because of that reality, Paul is praying, God, oh, don't let these people just hear these words and say, wow, wasn't that a great letter from Paul? Gee, it was really inspiring. I mean, let it sink down into their souls, Lord. Drop that, that Holy Spirit bunker buster down into the, the bunker of the soul and let it explode with grace. And let it explode with joy so that these people will really be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have to pray for ourselves. And, you know, we could actually stop there and, and take away an application. I think there's a principle for ministry here. That if you're going to be involved in ministry, the first rule is you have to be a person of prayer. Period. If you don't pray, you can't do ministry. Well, you can do it, but it won't work. <laughs> Real ministry that changes hearts is a work of God. And so if you're going to be involved in ministry, you have to be committed to prayer. We can externally change people. We can teach them traditions and behaviors. But unless God is using us by his spirit to touch the heart, nothing will really happen of eternal significance. And so ministers for Christ, and I use the word minister broadly, not to refer to pastors, but anyone who's ministering in the name of Christ has to be a person of prayer. Uh, this is what uh, John Calvin said in his commentary in Ephesians, if you look on the back of the sermon notes in the box there, here's a little quote by our good brother Calvin. And this is, in fact, he was commenting on this very verse, and in his commentary, this is the application he made. He said, let pastors learn from Paul's example. And I would also say, you could insert Sunday school teachers, you could insert choir member, you could insert 
member of the stewardship committee. You, you could insert anything there. Who's anyone ministering in the name of Christ? Let pastors learn from Paul's example, not only to admonish and exhort their people, but to entreat the Lord to bless their labors, that they may not be unfruitful. Nothing will be gained by their industry and toil. All their study and application will be to no purpose, except so far as the Lord bestows his blessing. We have to be a people of prayer. And so be praying. You know, you can have the best craft and the coolest visuals and the most engaging story, but unless God is touching the hearts of your the, you know, seven-year-old Sunday school class or your 10-year-old Sunday school class, it's not going to make a difference. So we've got to pray. Or maybe there's a friend that you've been trying to invite to church from school or you've been trying to get them to come to a Bible study and, and you've given them a book for Christmas about Christ and then you, you invited them over for dinner and then you didn't tell them but you invited the pastor over the same night. And, and so you know, you've done everything you can to try to get this person to hear about Jesus. Every trick in the book, legal and illegal. Uh, it, but you know, it'll be to no avail unless God touches the person's heart. So, we, let's pray. Because that's how we call upon the power of God. Uh, we say, God, touch this person's heart. So we have to be a people of prayer. And that's why Paul is praying. He knows that, boy, he can write a great letter. In fact, it's the word of God in his letters, but it must be accompanied with the spirit. Word and spirit have to work together to come in and, and touch the hearts of the people. And then, what does it look like when that happens? Look back at verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that what? What does it look like? What is the result or the consequence when the Holy Spirit comes in and moves with power in the soul of a listener? So that, here it is, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Is that just the most amazing phrase? I just get the chill sometimes when I really think about that. Christ dwelling in my heart through faith. In fact, I want you to take a pencil and just underline that little section. And if you have a pew Bible, I really want you to underline it. Uh, maybe someday someone will be reading the pew Bible and we'll see that underlined and it'll jump out at them. Uh, it's just so important. Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. This is the result of the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I think this is so important it's because I believe we have right here before us, before us one way of summarizing everything it means to be a Christian. I believe that little phrase, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, is a way of encapsulating everything it means to live the Christian life. You know, the Christian life is very complex and it has lots of features, but we could sort of pull it all together with this one idea, Christ living in my heart. A living relationship with the living Christ. That's what Christianity is. And if you have Christ in your heart, then you are his, and he is yours, and, and Christianity flows naturally from that. But if you don't have Christ in your heart, then it doesn't matter what else is going on. It doesn't matter what other externals are true in your life. You may go to church or, or volunteer, and all that is great, but without Christ in your heart, you don't know what Christianity is. That's it. I remember I had a conversation with a guy in the church once who was new to the church, and he didn't really understand this fact. Uh, he came up to me and said, oh, Pastor, because I really, really like it here. You know, this place is, you know, great. I, you know, I'm, I'm understanding things for the first time. He says, I'm coming from the, the Catholic church, 
and I'm, I'm coming into the Baptist church, though, and he says, I want to convert from Catholic to Baptist. And he said, so could you help me do that, to convert from Catholic to Baptist, and help me understand what the difference is? And, you know, like, okay, I mean, I understand, I think, what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, I came into this church, it's different, and I don't fully understand the culture of it. You know, in my church, the priest wore vestments. In this church, you wear khakis. You know, what, what, you know, what, what are the differences? What, why does it look different in the sanctuary? So I, I have a feeling he was sort of connecting at kind of the, the external cultural level. And, you know, we could talk about Catholic and Baptist differences and Nazarene and Presbyterian and Pentecostal and whatever. But the real issue I want to you know, say to the guy is, look, this is, a, is Christ in your heart? Because if you switch from Catholic to Baptist, but you don't get Christ in your heart, who cares? It doesn't matter. Because it's Christ in the heart that makes a believer. It's Christ in the heart. We need Christ inside of us. The church does not make the Christian. The church does not mediate salvation. Salvation is mediated by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if a person has Christ in their heart, then they are a brother or sister. Now, are denominational differences significant? Well, of course, they're significant. There's reasons why people are different denominations. I'm obviously a Baptist. In fact, I'm a Baptist on purpose. I mean, it's, I, I do it intentionally because I believe certain things. But you have to understand, I'm a Christian first, and I'm a Baptist second, or maybe third, <laughs> sometimes fourth. <laughs> but I'm a Christian first. I don't have Baptist in my heart. I have the living Christ in my heart. And it is as we focus on the living Christ that, that he guides us. And if, I pray that God will open your eyes too and make you all Baptists. But, you know, that's later on. <laughs> but do you have Christ? Do you have Christ? Do you have Christ? You need Christ in your hearts. Think about this. Jesus Christ is alive. Right? So I, just, I keep, have to remind myself of this. That he died. He was crucified. They buried him. He rose from the dead. And he's alive today. In a literal sense, he's alive. That he is more alive than I am. In fact, it is his life that gives me life. Christ is risen. He's alive. And because he is alive, through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit that he poured out on Pentecost, he is here with his people. That, and I mean this in, a, in a, a literal sense. Christ is in the pews with you through the Spirit. That Christ is here on the platform, and I pray that he's speaking to your hearts and I pray that he's speaking through me and that I'm not getting in the way, but that Christ is speaking to you. And that Christ, the living Christ, is inside of me through the power of the Holy Spirit. That the living Christ is in me and I can have a living relationship with the living Christ. It's amazing. And so because of that, Paul is saying, do you have the living Christ? <clears throat> or to put it another way, Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns, I've heard it said. Uh, it, it, it's not enough to say, I believe in a God, or I believe there is a God, or I believe in, you know, that God is the, the God of the Bible. You have to be able to say, I want God, I believe God is my God. There has to be a pronoun there, a personal pronoun. And I am his personal pronoun. It's not enough to say, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus was a good man. I even believe that he died on the cross. I even believe he rose again. The question is, is he your Savior? Does he live inside of your heart? There has to be that, that personal involvement. I heard a story once of, uh, uh, apparently, from what I understand, it's a true story. Um, a while back uh, in Europe, there was a little village that got a new pastor. And this pastor 
started going around house to house to visit the different people so he'd get to know them. And, and he came to this one lady's house and visited. And the, the husband came home that evening from work and, and working in the fields. And he said, you know, so how was your day? She said, oh, the new pastor stopped by. And the husband said, oh, oh yeah, what did he say? He said, well, it's kind of strange. He, he asked me, does Christ live here? And the man was sort of like, well, what kind of question is that? You know, doesn't this, doesn't this pastor know that we're really decent people? And she said, well, I, I don't know, but, you know, that's not what he asked me, honey. He asked me, does Christ live here? And the, you know, the husband got a little more upset. He said, doesn't this guy know that, that we go to church and that, we, that our family's been in his church for generations? And, and she says, well, I think he knows that, but that's not what he asked. He asked, does Christ live here? And he said, doesn't he know that I tithe? <laughs> well, I don't know if he knows that. But, you know, he asked, does Christ live here? And suddenly, you know, it started dawning on both of them. And they thought about it. Does Christ live here? Does Christ live inside of us? Does Christ live in our families, in our homes? Does Christ live in our church? Does Christ live in your ministry? Because this is real Christianity. When the living Christ in our lives is free to exert his living power, through the Holy Spirit, and that's when biblical Christianity happens, when God is at work. And so let me ask you, in, as bluntly as I can, do you have Christ in your heart? And that's not just a question for anyone who doesn't know Christ. That's also a question for us as Christians. I find this interesting. I sort of had to wrestle with this as I studied this passage. You know, Paul writes verse 17 to believers. Right? He's praying for believers that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. When I first read that, I was like, okay, so whoa, whoa, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that Christ isn't in my heart as a Christian, but that there is some later experience where after I am a Christian, Christ comes into my heart? Uh, but I, I just don't think that's the case. I mean, there's so many places throughout Scripture where Paul talks about Christ in us and us in Christ. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, he says in Romans. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you know, Christ is in you. I think what Paul means in verse 17 is something akin to what he meant in chapter 1, verse 17. If you look back there, another prayer section, very parallel. Chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, I keep asking. He's a prayer warrior. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So he's not praying that they would get the Holy Spirit. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would be more active in their lives so they can know Christ better. And, and so that's what I think is taking place here in Ephesians, though it's not stated so explicitly. He's not praying that the Ephesians would get Christ. He's praying that, maybe we could put it this way, that Christ in them would, would have a greater influence, that they'd have a greater experience of the power of Christ's life in them. And so it's a question for me as a Christian. Do I have Christ in the sense of, do I, have, do I want more of Christ? How much is Christ really reigning in me? Are there things that are hindering or blocking the life of Christ in me? Are there things that are clogging up my heart? And, and if, if I could just get rid of them, Christ could fill me up more? Is there anything you'd like to trade in for more of Christ? Do you have any bitterness in your heart? Do you have any idols you're clinging to? Do you have... Um, hurts and sorrows, maybe from when you were a kid that you never totally gotten rid of and it's like clogging you up. Get rid of it and let Christ fill you. 
Trade up, trade in. Get more of Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. And I don't know, it's the best way I think to end this is just to ask God to do that by faith. If you've never asked Christ into your heart, maybe you have gone to church your whole life, maybe you grew up in the Baptist church or the Catholic church or the Presbyterian church, but, but you're not sure if Christ is in your heart by faith. You've never trusted in Him personally. I'd invite you to do so right now. Just pray a simple prayer. Just say, Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I am empty. And I confess that I am a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, forgive my sins. Come into my life. I want to know you. Jesus, I trust you in your death on the cross for my sins. And now if you're a Christian and there's something that, that you want to just have removed from your heart and filled up and replaced with Christ, if you want to trade in and trade up, I'd encourage you just to take a moment of silence now and, and just between you and God, do that continual work of sanctification as by faith you ask for it. Maybe you need to, to confess some sin. Maybe it is some resentment. Maybe it is a hurt that has hindered you and slowed you up for years. You, you not try to get rid of it. Just pray, Christ, fill me up and, and buoy me up and get rid of the stuff inside of my soul. Just take a minute to pray and do whatever business God would have you to do with him. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do a great work among your people now. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might transform their inner person and that you would dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord Jesus, I, I so easily fall into a ritualized, habitualized Christianity. And Christ, what I desire is a living, beating, thriving, vibrant relationship with you. So Christ, I pray, if there's anything in my life that I'm not even aware of, just scour it out, clean the inside of the bowl, and fill up the bowl with Christ so that I might know you and love you. And out of that vibrant living relationship with the living Christ, may we become a holy people. May obedience flow naturally. May sharing the gospel be normal. And God, may all these things happen as we're filled up with you. So I pray, Lord, fill up your people with the Holy Spirit. Pour it out upon them. I pray with Paul, God, for these people who've heard Paul's words that you would touch their hearts and fill them up with Christ. We ask this through the name of Christ, who has promised to hear and answer our prayers. Amen.